Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This is where I round up the best of my radio show on Talk Radio, bringing you brilliant, inspiring, and oh-so-wise guests. This week, we are looking at Black History Month with Jamila Boothman, assistant head at Woodside High School, talking about why black, Asian and minority ethnic authors have been sidelined from the curriculum. Plus, we meet Dotan Adebayo, host of 400 Years of Taking the Knee on Sky History, who's looking at the inspiring resistance heroes who have fought for black freedom over 400 years. I'm also talking to Sam Baker, journalist and author, about her new book, The Shift, in which she looks at how menopause and life after it can truly empower women. First up, we meet Jamila. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. So we're starting this show and the whole three hours really talking about Black History Month. It's October, happens every year. We shout about it each year, but this year it feels like there's so much going on. It's a privilege to be able to talk about it all. But despite the fact that Black History Month has been going for years now, despite the fact that we have been talking about it for years, despite the fact that pretty much every year we talk about it, we say, do you know what we need to do? We need to change the curriculum. Most GCSE pupils still have not studied a book by a black, Asian or minority ethnic author. Here to talk to us about it is T. Jamila Boothman, assistant head at Woodside High School. Hi, Jamila. Hi there. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, so I feel like the discussion around how we, for want of a better term, diversify reading lists has been going on for quite a long time now. What is getting in the way of it actually happening? Um, I think there are probably a number of things. Um, I think one of the things that people get a little bit nervous about, but that I, I, I do think need to need to touch on is, the idea of the fact that people do tend to recruit in their own image. And if you look at the mm. statistics with regards to teachers and uh, the numbers of how many uh, teachers are black and minority ethnic, and then you think about teachers sitting around the table to discuss what they're going to offer, I think there's far, it's far less likely that that's going to be diverse if the people making those decisions aren't diverse. And I think... Um, I, I don't think that it's necessarily something that people intend to do, but I certainly think that, you know, as, as human beings, sometimes we even feel insecure about about mm. covering things that we ourselves don't know too much about. So I think that's certainly one of the things. I think the other thing is that there does tend to often be a, a habit to focus on texts that 
appear in the GCSE. And because there mm-hmm. are so few black and minority ethnic um, authors and poets that, that, are, that are selected, I think that it just becomes a natural thing that people decide, well, we'll stick with, we'll stick with what we know, you know. So this is really interesting because for those of us who aren't teachers, I don't really know how books get selected. I sort of vaguely, going back to my own GCSEs, vaguely have a memory that, you know, certainly my teachers were clearly selecting books that they were passionate about or interested about, interested in. But what you're saying is actually a bit of a double bind here. So the first thing is they've got to teach certain books that are on the list yeah, but then and there's just not a lot of diversity diversity in those lists. But then even yeah. below that, actually, lots of teachers. If you're looking at a school where the major- vast majority of teachers are white, yeah. they're probably not going to be teaching outside of their own experience. Yes, I mean, so when you get to secondary school, you've got mm. key stage three, which goes up to uh, the end of year nine, and then you've got key stage four, which is year ten and eleven. Usually. Um, as you would expect, the focus for 10 and 11 is going to be on whatever is going to be studied for the GCSE papers, and that takes a lot yeah. of preparation. Key stage three, there's a lot more flexibility. And I think what tends to happen is people do what they're comfortable with. There are decisions that are made, usually by a head of department, and then you'd have people in charge of the phases. So you'd usually have a lead in terms of key stage three. In my school, I have to say, my English department are awesome. And, you know, we have, I think our, our key stage three curriculum leader is Turkish um, and, a, and, and a huge number of our, of our students are Turkish. Um, uh, we have a range of different people um, different, uh, from different minorities. Um, and even, even I've been at my school for seven years and we've always done poetry from around the world. We've always looked at John Agard. We've, we've, there are so many um, amazing poets, Imtiaz Darka. Um, and we do go out of our way to make sure that there is a range of different texts that the students study. But there is because there's no rule on it, I think it, a lot of the time it doesn't happen. Do you think we should be leaving this up to schools or do you think there actually needs to be a level of, whether it's from the Department of Education or the exam boards, actually more well, of a, do you know what, no, we need to study outside? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that it needs to be left to schools. And the reason that I say that is because every single school ha- is different. Every school is located in a different area. And I think that essentially what it takes is people who are culturally competent to say, well, look, X percent of our students are such and such. Why don't we seek to teach a text where the main character is relatable to our students because of their name or the way that they look or that the issues that they face? Um, why don't we focus on, some, on a text that builds pride in specific cultures and customs and dialects? Let's be intentional with this. And I think the problem with taking that power away from the school is that you end up with a similar problem because actually it needs to be that the people who are making those decisions recognise and understand who their school community is and value it and respect it. There are probably people listening to this and saying, well, hang on, these texts that are being required to study, I think there's a requirement for sort of one Shakespeare, one pre-19th century, etc., etc. They're Mm -hmm. classics for a reason. And the whole point of literature is that it, you know, allows us to see the world through an author's eyes and really, we should all be studying these classics. What would you say to that? I'd ask them why. 
<laughs> I'd ask for why. I mean, gotcha. I get it. And yes, I mean, I'm an English teacher, so I've, I've, I've obviously I've read all of those things. But I think we do have to be careful about the opinion that, for example, West Indian history begins in 1492 with the arrival of Columbus. It always depends on who's telling the story. And I think that it is very important to understand that the more that you expose yourself and the young people who you are responsible for developing um, to different things, the more that they will question those views. And, and I do think it's important. I mean, the thing to remember is that where it comes to schools, it's always really, really easy to say, well, actually, we're here to teach them this. And at home, their parents, their carers, that their job is to develop them in a different way. But actually, I think although there are young people whose parents and carers and siblings and relatives do support them and who are able to, to try and seek out diverse texts for them do, in 2020, Inner City London, where there are language barriers and literacy issues and lack of resources and lack of access to certain things, the reality is that the option of seeking out diverse texts is a luxury um, for many young people. And many yeah. simply don't have that. And this is why it's so important that diverse texts are not only taught in schools, but that they're made available to young people um, because it, it really, really is important. Um, you know, a child from a disadvantaged background um, is 18 months behind when they sit their GCSEs, typically, you know. Yeah. And so schools do have a responsibility to expose young people to a range of, of texts. I mean, nobody's saying that they shouldn't study the classics because, again, that is about cultural competence, uh, not cultural competence, that is about um, kind of developing... Um, people's opportunity to sit in a room and feel valid and feel able to discuss things that everybody else is discussing, you know. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that Shakespeare is more valuable than anything else. What impact do you see on your students when you teach texts that perhaps relate to their cultural heritage or their backgrounds or just are... A, a wider range than we traditionally see taught in English literature classes? Um, I mean, for me personally, I see young people who may not always be the ones who get praise from their teachers for a range of different reasons. I see young people who don't necessarily feel like they're able to contribute, maybe, as I said, because language is, a, is an issue, maybe English is not their first language. Um, maybe literacy isn't something that they're strong with. But the moment you start talking about someone who reminds them of a member of their family or you remind them of a custom that they used to do when they were back where they, where they were born, you immediately change the, the conversation in that room. You immediately empower that young person and you immediately see them start to contribute. And, and that is priceless. And presumably that then actually has a knock-on effect with how engaged they are with education how likely they are to do well, how likely they are to stay in education, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that essentially is what it's all about. I mean, people, I think a lot of the time people talk about education as if it's as simple as, you know, you program the child by putting information in and it's not. School is ultimately about relationships or a huge amount of it is about relationships. And I think the best relationships that you have with your with your young people is when they know that you value them. You value them, you value their parents, you value their carers. And, you know, even when you have difficult conversations, which often, often have to be had, it will depend on how you treat those people um, 
as to how they re- react to you. You know, I've spoken to many parents whose children have been naughty or whatever it is, but because they know that you value them and because they understand that you know that they know their child better than you do, you're not arrogant enough to think that you would just because you're a teacher, immediately it changes the narrative and it's just about mutual respect and reciprocity. I think what you've said there is so important. It changes, it literally changes the narrative for that child's belief and understanding of what the education system is and then the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Shamila, thank you so much for um, just putting such a brilliant case, I think, for really looking at what we are teaching (laughs) young children. So thank you so much for joining us. It's Shamila Boothman, Assistant Head at Woodside High School there, um, talking about the really horrifying statistic that actually most GCSE pupils by the time they get to GCSE will have not studied a single book by a black Asian or minority ethnic author. I certainly know that I didn't when I was going through that education process. That was more years than I'd like to say ago. But it's astonishing that here we are in 2020 celebrating Black History Month and yet a lot of kids will be sitting down back in school for the first first time in six months studying the same text we've all been studying for 50 years why haven't we thought about it why haven't we changed it up a bit mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, if you have been watching the Premier League, if you have been keeping up with American football, if you have just been aware of what is going on in the world, you've noticed athletes around the world taking the knee. Not just athletes, policemen and women, uh, some politicians. It's become a mark of respect and commitment to equality in the Western world, but Dr. Adebayo, host of 400 years of Taking the Knee on Sky History, says that this is not a recent thing. In fact, we need to start looking back through centuries of black history if we're to understand how it's influencing today. Uh, Dotton joins me now. Hello. Hi, Harriet. How are you? Good. Thank you. Um, start us off by telling us a little bit about the show 400 Years of Taking the Knee. 
It's just as you said. Look, we've all looked at the symbolism of people taking the knee all across the world since Colin Kaepernick, the NFL footballer, started that a few years back. And obviously this year, as a result of the death of George Floyd that was seen in full view by the world, people started thinking, well, hang on a second, we'll associate with this symbol. But where does it come from is the question. It, it, for me, it came out of the blue, to be honest, because initially I thought, oh, that's a little bit odd. For me, it looked like a, um, a symbol of submission rather than yeah. as simple as you um, described it of respect and so on look like whoa you know I'm not sure about that one but it, it seems to have caught the world uh, by surprise but it's also lit up the world in many different ways why is it actually it's a really interesting kind of point because I had the same reaction I completely forgot when I first saw it which was going hang on doesn't that feel a bit like you know, bowing your head or taking yes. it down why do why do you think taking the knee has become a symbol? Where did where did it come from? Well, what we try to do with this um, two part series is mm. to look at it as a symbol of resistance. It is a symbol yeah. of resistance to um, prejudice, discrimination, racism. You know, it captures all of that. Yeah. But there were other symbols of resistance way before going back. So we start off um, in the sort of 16th, 17th century with Nanny, who's this uh, symbol of resistance against oppression, uh, an enslaved person, initially from West Africa, enslaved with her two brothers as a very young girl. And um, as she got older, the resistance in her grew stronger. And eventually she decided to become a quote unquote runaway from enslavement. And um, she went up with her brothers up in the hills um, of Jamaica, the Blue Mountains, and carried out what was really one of the first sort of guerrilla warfare um, battles uh, with the British, the British Redcoats. So literally this ragtag army of runaway enslaved people were taking on what was then probably the mightiest army in the world. And they fought a decent battle, to be honest. And, you know, it was empowered yeah. by their, their their resistance to this. So if we trace it back then, there have been all sorts of forms of resistance to uh, racism and prejudice and discrimination uh, going through. People know about Martin Luther King, then coming up into the 60s with the uh, black power symbol by uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the Mexico Olympics of 1968. So we try and trace an umbilical cord, if you like, from Nanny uh, 400 years ago to, uh, you know, what's happening with Colin Kaepernick and with all the footballers and sports mm. people all around the world at the moment. There seems to be, as you said, that umbilical What do you think it is that unites people in that moment of resistance? Is it, is it one moment where somebody goes, do you know what, enough now, enough now, I won't stand for it? Or is it a build-up of anger? That's a really good question. Um, I think if you've had a, a lifetime of discrimination, I mean, there's a humanity amongst all of us that, you know, you, you understand that this is the way people are supposed to be treated and live your life. And if you're not being treated that way, there is a resistance from an early age. But when there's nothing you can do about it, then... You know, you just think, yeah. oh, well, that's, that's my lot. You know, you, you're talking about many women's issues. As a father of two daughters myself, I, I'm yeah. intrigued to try and shape the world 
in a way that works for them as well as works for me. I, I don't want them to, you know, give up and sort of think, oh, well, it's a man's world, that's the end of it. No, no, um, you, you want to stand up to that if you can, if you can, but if the world seems against you, then you just think, well, the, the laws of the world, you know, if you go back to the sort of uh, enslavement days, both in Britain and the United States, the laws of the country empowered enslavers. So how can you fight against that? And I think in, in what Colin Kaepernick does by taking the knee, I get a sense of him sort of having lived through um, a lifetime of uh, discrimination. Suddenly he thinks, well, there's nothing more I can do. But the one thing that I have got power in is to, instead of standing up to the American National Anthem, to, to create my own symbolism of how I regard the American flag and so on. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily against it, but you think, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to stand up to it like you because it doesn't encapsulate my rights. You know, in, in, <laughs> there have been so many um, amendments to the Constitution in the United States which basically um, try to sort of readdress the issue that in the Constitution they didn't mean black folks when they were saying all men were created equal. They didn't mean black folks mm -hmm. at all, even though there yeah. were large numbers of enslaved people there. And, and it's the same elsewhere. You know, there have been discrimination or discriminatory laws in this country which have been overturned mm -hmm. over the course of time as well. When you were doing your research, did you find that there was a legacy of strong black women taking part in this resistance as well? Because often when I think of... Um, sort of some of those people that are uh, some of those people I say some, some of those women who have been part of the of the I guess the resistance to discrimination to slavery to the treatment of black people around the world but particularly in the US and the UK I'm thinking of really strong amazing women I'm thinking of Harriet Tubman I'm thinking of Rosa Parks did you find that there was as you were finding, as you were searching out people, that there was this repeating pattern of black women actually going against not just how society saw them as a black person, but also as a woman. Hundred percent. Like I said, we start with Nanny of the Maroons. Uh, so Jamaica's very first national hero, and they have many. The very first was a woman, and a woman who led a rebellion and who fought against men and didn't take any nonsense from any man. And then it <laughs> continues with the likes of Sojourner Truth, um, famous lines from her, and ain't I a woman too? I Don't I count as well? Amongst other things, Phyllis Sweetly, who um, challenged, uh, well, when she was able to free herself through her poetry, uh, challenge the discrimination against other people. Angela Davis, powerful, powerful philosopher, yeah. uh, militant black woman of the Black Power era, um, of course, known in association with the Soledad brothers, George Jackson, etc. But in her own right, has gone on to become one of the most um, prominent academics in the United States today. In, in, in my day, when I was growing up, she just had the biggest afro ever. So that's the way <laughs> I related to her. But obviously, over time, you learn a bit. And yeah, during the course of this as well you know you've mentioned a few uh, people as well you know Rosa Park can't take anything away from her interestingly enough the the umbilical cord from Rosa Park's 
um, bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, which took a year to succeed, by the way, and it triggered the whole civil rights movement. The, the amazing thing about the umbilical cord with that is to the UK, to Bristol, where a young man called uh, Paul Stevenson decided to um, start a bus boycott of the Bristol Bus Company, which wasn't hiring any black or Asian people at that time. They just weren't doing it. They weren't having it. And he conducted a bus boycott managed to succeed in about six weeks and it succeeded on the same day um, that Martin Luther King uh, three, 4,000 miles away was giving uh, this I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. Completely, um, you know, um, coincidentally, this was happening on both sides of the Atlantic all the way through. You know, there's a young boy, Emmett Till, which... Um, whose murder, he was 14 years old, murdered by some racists in the Deep South for apparently, allegedly uh, whistling at a white woman, which they found deeply mm. offensive. So they went and kidnapped him in the middle of the night, tortured him, murdered him so horribly that the government, uh, the authorities were trying to force his mother to uh, not uh, put him, lay him in state in an open casket. Uh, she refused, and a remarkable woman, a remarkable woman, Mamie Till, uh, refused, stood up to authority, made sure that everybody saw how badly her son, a 14-year-old, had been brutalised and murdered and maimed. Mm -hmm. And she, for me, stands as one of the most powerful women in the whole civil rights trajectory. Fanny Lou Hamer, another woman who spoke up at the Democratic Convention in 1964, I think it was, spoke up about the racism within the Democratic Party, within the USA, and got flogged, flogged, this is flogged, a flogging uh -huh. by a policeman in a cell as a result of it, you know? That's that's yeah. the price that women have paid as well. They're always at the forefront of any struggle, I find. I mean, those stories there are shocking and... Well, I say shocking. They are shocking, but they're also... You we know we know they have happened we know that's that that is what has happened what does happen to women particularly black women who own their own voices and stand up for their rights how do you think telling these stories and sharing this history and making us all aware of it do you think that will change how we see how we see Britain and ourselves as culturally, as a as a as a homogenous group. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, if any of us in the media could have that kind of power, wow, what a beautiful <laughs> world! What a wonderful world it would be. So I, I feel I, like I we could have it. We just get it wrong all the time. That's what yeah, I worry we do. about. We do, but you know, sometimes our job is just to be the messengers, and this is. I'm just a messenger talking you through um, an understanding of this so that taking the knee doesn't just become something that you do like shaking hands, you know, or we don't shake hands anymore. We, you know, we touch elbows nowadays in that sort of like radical yeah. hip hop way that they used to do. <laughs> Everybody's doing it now for prime ministers to presidents and some of them are not taking COVID seriously as we know. Let's leave that to one side. But you know, it's um, it's 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 amazing when you sort of try and tell uh, or send a message, if you like. If you when you try to be the messenger, 
um, the most fearful thing is that you get something wrong because obviously if the message is wrong, it's not even if the message is wrong, sometimes because, you know, it's my voiceover, sometimes if you stress the wrong word, um, you know, like in the English language, the word it is rarely ever stressed, very, very rarely stressed. But if you suddenly say it is, there's a, people think, oh, what? He must mean, he must want us to concentrate on that. It. What is it? And by then they've lost the message. So um, it's not just delivering a, a, a message, not just being a messenger of this history, but also getting it right, um, making sure that it, it drops right so that people get the message rather than think about anything else. And, and how that message permeates to them is up to every individual. Some people discount it and turn their back on it. And other people think, oh, right, okay, it makes sense now. Oh, okay, whenever I see Lewis Hamilton taking the knee, that's, this is the history it's coming from. It sounds wonderful, and I can't wait to watch it. Justin Adebayo there talking about the new show, 400 Years of Taking the Knee on Sky History. Thank you so much, Justin. Just... When he was listing all those incredible women that have risked and sometimes been brutalized in order to push forward human rights to say that the way they are treated is not acceptable, I feel like we are so lucky to be able to hear those stories and almost, quite frankly, slightly undeserving of them. Um so that is my request to please tune in, watch, learn. Let's not just have Black History Month. Let's actually have a month of learning and respecting what people went through to get us to this point. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Before the break, we were talking about the menopause with Meg Matthews and we're going to keep talking about it because as we discovered in that conversation... Basically, none of us know what's happening. Men or women, we are all completely clueless. And then suddenly, we get to a certain age and things change. And we don't know how to handle it. Well, my next guest has written a brilliant book on her own experience of the menopause and what she learned as she went along. And what I particularly love about it is that it actually paints the menopause as potentially quite an empowering experience. She joins me now, Sam Baker. Hi, Sam. Hi, Harriet. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> when I was reading your book, one of the things that I really, really liked about it was that it talks about the menopause as actually not this kind of dreadful thing that appears on women and we don't know how to deal with it and it takes over and that's it for the rest of our lives but as a period of time that shapes us and moves us, but also takes us somewhere different. Did you deliberately want to write about it in that way? Um, yeah. I mean, when I, um, I wrote The Shift, because when I, uh, I kind of sleepwalked into menopause when I was about 46, mid-40s, yeah. and I was uh, the first of all my friends. And so, you know, I asked my friends, do you think that's what this is? And they were all like, oh, get away. It might be catching, you know. <laughs> like, like, literally, nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody knew anything about it. So I wanted, first of all, to write about that. I just didn't want anybody else to, to go through that. But also, when I came out the other side, I was really astonished by how much better I felt. 
how much more comfortable in myself, how much more confident, how much more assertive, a lot less people pleasing. I was a terrible people pleaser. And so I just thought, you know, let's talk about the good, the bad and the ugly of menopause. But also let's talk about life on the other side, because I think we really approach it as the end. Mm. You know, it's like it's like a full stop. And nobody ever says, this is what you lose, but this is what you gain. It's all about what you lose. And I think that's why we're afraid to talk about it, because for women, it's daunting, you know, and we're not, you know, aging is not something that is is encouraged in women. We're meant to just pretend we don't. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's any sort of aging for women is is a terrifying prospect, supposedly. But I really love this idea that you said that you came out of menopause and felt better than you had done before do you know what caused that is it hormonal is it simply having got through it what was it for you well you know i think there are loads of things but i do think hormones play a part i mean um estrogen is kind of called uh in the in the scientific circles it is dubbed the bitability hormone and i think you definitely see as you go through menopause you definitely find a sense of how do I put it? Let me give you an example. If somebody comes in the room and they say, oh, I've lost my keys, and you immediately start helping them look for it. And then once you go through menopause, they, you know, a kid comes in the room and says, I've lost my keys, and you're like, what do you want me to do about it? You know, it's just a bit <laughs> really is that shit. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was this brilliant flea bag scene with Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah. Where she said, you know, we're post watershed, aren't we? Because it was a bit sweary. But she basically uh, if said, if you can avoid the swearing, that would be much appreciated. <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. Okay. So it's quite hard to quote without that. But basically, she said, it's very bad, but then it's really amazing. And it was that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody say that. Whenever you see anybody on TV or you know in a film, if if there's any suggestion of menopause, they're always kind of the butt of the joke. So I started researching the book and I canvassed more than 50 women to talk about their menopause because, you know, it seemed to me that there are as many different ways of going through menopause as there are women. And we talked about everything from HRT through their experience at work, um, how they felt the fashion industry treats them, um, relationships, sex, everything. And it was just absolutely eye-opening and fascinating. And it was really, one thing that was really fascinating was how many women were having very similar experience to me. And they were hitting their kind of early, mid-50s and going, actually, I feel great now. I feel like pretty different, but but great. So I remember talking to a woman in her mid-50s quite a few years ago now, and she said, actually, there is a massive untapped potential of women of around that age Mm. for leadership and kind of competitive business roles because here are all these women who actually just in terms of you know all the things that women go through which is like children and caring for elderly parents and uh, all our hormones and menopause and everything else they've sort of got to a point where actually they might be through all of that plus they're physically feeling like hang on I can take on the world and all the stuff that was stopping me before is gone yeah and I actually feel like I have a more productive energy than than I did before I mean I think she's absolutely right and you kind of you know look up now I mean I'm not sure how old you are Harriet but look above you and think okay where are the role models where are they? Where are they? Yeah. I mean, there are a few. Obviously, you can name me 
yeah. Kamala Harris and Mary Portis and Christine Lagarde. But, you know, it doesn't take many hands to name them. And I just think it's a massive waste of resource. It really is. What would you like women who potentially think they are going through the perimenopause or the beginning of menopause right now to know? And what would you recommend them to do? Is this actually, you know, should we all be going to our GP and asking for HRT? Should we all be dancing by the light of the full moon in the hope that will help? <laughs> what, what's some of the stuff that actually worked for you? Well, I, I think one of the things that, uh, that is really important is it's not all about hot flushes. I mean, yeah, you, you may well have them and they're horrible, but there are 34 symptoms. You know, in fact, nobody really knows how many symptoms there are. If you Google it, some, you'll find something that tells you there are 66 as well. But, wow. you know, and so many of those are around mental health, around confidence and anxiety and stress. And I think it's really important to know that because so many women I spoke to said to me, I just went through this period in my mid-40s, my late-40s, I just didn't know who I was anymore. It's like I lost my sense of myself. And what, so some of them going on HRT, some of them it was natural, natural supplements, you know, everybody's different. That, that gave them themselves back. And I think, don't do what I do and did and wait nearly two years to go and get help because that was just, was just a waste. You know, go to your GP. And if you can't get help from your GP or if you're not satisfied, you know, keep going keep going back because you know gps do an amazing job but they're general practitioners and they have very little training on the menopause and you know it's it's like the pill you know one pill doesn't work for every woman and one type of hrt doesn't work for every woman so just keep going back until you're satisfied don't just think oh i have to accept this now and you know i'll i'll just go and do what i'm told and just suffer in silence do you think that actually if we um if we talked about the menopause more if we were perhaps more open about it both the good and the bad we would see women having longer careers we would see women being able to be more open about it in the workplace and actually take away some of the stigma from it Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, I absolutely agree with Meg. We've got to talk about it. And we've got to keep talking about it and just talk some more about it. And a, a couple of people that I've spoken to have said to me, oh, yeah, but women don't want to talk about that. It's like asking female MPs about their shoes instead of their policies. Like, well, no, it, it's not. Because if we normalize it, if we just make it part of the conversation, then, then you know, people will start to accept that that's what you know, that that's what's happening. I mean, I would love to know what Kamala Harris's experience of the menopause was, is, yeah. you know, who knows? She could be, you know, campaigning for the election and going through perimenopause right now. I mean, that, that's, oh, that's A, it's fascinating, and B, she, that makes her a complete powerhouse, yeah. you know, because it's tough. So I just think, you know, Every one of us is going to go through it. 51% of the population go through it, and it affects 100% of the population because, you know, you, a lot of men will be living with women going through it. You know, it's, it just is going to be much more productive for all of us if, if, we, if we talk about it. Absolutely. Finally, do you think that 
obviously we need women to talk about it too but how do we get how do we bring men into this conversation how can we get men away from this sort of terrified oh my god it's this weird woman thing that I don't understand stay over there and into a place where actually they support and maybe have a a clearer a sense of what's happening and how they can be there for women during it which you know when I was recording the audiobook of a shift the male producer was probably in his late 50s and I said to him oh you know you're probably sick of listening to this and he said you know what I think if I'd read this book before I wouldn't be divorced And I was just like, wow, that is is so interesting. And since the book was published, which was uh, about four weeks ago, I've just had the most incredible response. Women saying, oh, my God, thank you. You know, I feel like I'm not the only person going through this. But also from men saying that they just didn't understand what what their wives were going through. And that certainly, if you don't know what you're going through, how do you expect your partner to know? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my partner had to cope with me having hysterics in the kitchen more than normal, you know, and yeah. it's like you're going effectively going through a reverse puberty. And it might be, you know, I mean, first of all, let's just say not everybody has a really bad one. So don't, you know, yeah. don't panic. But you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm mildly it, panicking, but I'm trying to be reassured. No, no, yes, no, no, don't panic. Honestly, it's great on the other side. You just, <laughs> you know, just got to get back. It's a bridge, not just an abyss. <laughs> yeah. Um, and somebody else wrote to me and said that they had um, poor. I mean, the poor boy must have been mortified. Sat down their 13 year old son and told him that that day this was what was happening to them, and that, so this is you know this is why they were hot and angry and. Um, and he said, well, why don't they teach us in schools? Like, well, that's a really yeah. good point. And I know they are talking now about putting it on the, on the syllabus. But, you know, why don't you? It's biology. Mm-hmm. It's really important that you understand that, you know, much as there's a beginning to that, the cycle of puberty for women, there's also, you know, an end to part of it. I think it's hugely important and I really hope that we can put this on the curriculum so that we don't grow up with another generation of both women and men not understanding something that is happening to 50% of the population. Sam, thank you so much for talking about it with us and also for writing your brilliant book, The Shift, which is out now. And honestly, women over 30... women under 30 as well but women over 30 please go and read it immediately um and then pass it on if you have a boyfriend husband man in your life pass it on to them and make sure they understand it too you've been listening to badass women's hour if you like the show then help more people find us you can tag us or talk to us on social media using at badass women's hour or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating five stars please It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.